You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church of Savannah. A sermon from our series entitled Walk by Faith. For more information, visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Amen. All right. Um, well, I hope you're doing well. Um, if we haven't had the opportunity to meet or you're new to the church, my name is Clint Ware, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here. This is actually my first Sunday on staff as a resident of the city. Um, the commute is no more. You guys are so kind, so kind with the applause. It's so, it's so great. Um, well, yeah, we closed on our house in Athens on Wednesday, and then we bought a house uh, uh, this past Friday in town, and so we're in the process of transitioning into it. So looking forward to actually being here, not having to commute back and forth. This has been great. Um, but if you have your Bible, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 11. If you've been here this summer, you know that we are in a, a sermon series that we're calling Walk by Faith through Hebrews chapter 11. So we're going to continue that this morning. Um, and as you're turning there, I, I was thinking about Hebrews in specific. I think there are some books of the Bible that you can just sit down in the morning, get your cup of coffee, crack them open, and you can just kind of read and understand what's going on without much context, okay? Whatever that is that you do that in the morning or whenever you read your Bible, well, Hebrews is not one of those books. Not one of those books that we can read without context. So if we're going to understand the verses we're going to read here in a second, we have to know at least a little bit of the background of what's going on here. So the book of Hebrews was written to a group of people who were ethnically Jewish. And that's where the Hebrews part comes in. They were ethnically Jewish, but they had converted to Christianity. And so what that means, if they were ethnically Jewish and they converted to Christianity, it means that they saw Jesus as the promised Messiah. That they heard the gospel, someone preached to them the good news, that Jesus was the one who came to take their sins away, that he was that one, and they responded in faith. They had their lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then what's clear from Hebrews, if you read through the entire letter, is after that fact, after they convert to Christianity, life got incredibly difficult for them. Okay, so um, the climate and the culture around them had grown incredibly hostile to anyone who would claim to be a believer in or a follower of Jesus. And, and this isn't explicitly in the book of Hebrews, but we know from history that at this time in history, the life under Roman rule, it would be very common for someone to be killed simply for their faith in Jesus. And then explicitly in the letter, we know that it would be common for Christians to receive threats, for them to be beaten, for them to be thrown in prison. There's even an account in chapter 10, which we're going to see here in a second, that says that while some folks were thrown in prison for their faith, which again, prison, we have to, we have to understand context here, not prison like us. And I'm not saying being in prison is a vacation, I've never been, I don't know, but I know that it's worse here. There's not three square meals, there's no rec time, there's no place for you to sleep, you're thrown in a hole until you die, okay? And so some people were thrown in prison uh, for being a Christian, and so some other folks who were Christians went to care for them. So they left their homes, they traveled to go care for them, and while they were gone, the Bible says that their homes were looted and vandalized. Okay, so you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to go care for these people, we're going to take your stuff, basically set your house on fire. If that's not a moment where you have to have a chat with God, I don't know what is, right? And maybe you've been there before, where you've been in that spot where you're like, I'm going to do the right thing this time. I'm going to take the extra step, and then all of a sudden you're punished for doing the right thing. You think to yourself, and you're, you get bitter. You think in your heart, that's what I get. That's what I get for trying to help them out. What's interesting about this story in particular is that the Bible says that's not how they responded at all. This will be on the screen for you. I want you to see this. It says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened. Real quick, that enlightened means after you were given eyes to see and ears to hear who the real Jesus is. After you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Skip down. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you had a better possession and an abiding one. 
So I don't know how that last sentence just hit you, but that is a staggering statement, okay? The point is here that they had seen and experienced the love of God for them in Christ in such a way that they had been absolutely set free from the love of things. That the gospel had transformed their life and their heart so much they were set free from the love of things. The Bible says you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, not because what they had didn't have any value to them, so it wasn't a situation where it's like, well, we didn't have anything worth anything anyway, so who cares? That's not what's going on. What happened here is because they knew that what they had in Jesus was more than they could ever need. And their lives were completely transformed by their faith in who their God is and what he had done for them. But what comes evident as you read through the book of Hebrews, and again, this is just kind of background. When you read through this letter, even though they had been transformed by the gospel, as life continued to get hard for them, they began to be tempted to either walk away from following Jesus altogether or to try to add to the gospel with the things that they can bring to the table. So yes, I, I, I need to follow Jesus, but I also need to do these other things as well. And the author of Hebrews writes this letter to exhort them and to encourage them not to do that. That's the whole point of the book of Hebrews. Don't give up. Don't walk away from your faith. Don't walk away losing sight of Jesus. The point of the book of Hebrews and why we name this series this, continue to follow Jesus, continue to walk by faith, regardless of how difficult your life may be or how foolish it might make you look. And so he starts in Hebrews chapter 11 by saying this, and we covered this at length, but if you have your Bible, look at verse 1. He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. So his point here is that faith, by definition, it means that we are putting our hope in something that we don't have yet. He says faith is the assurance of things hoped for, which means it's us living our lives now in light of the reality that what God has promised will come true. So it's faith is living our lives now in the reality that what God has promised us in the future will be true, and that should shape the way we live our lives now. Again, we have to remember that this letter was written to a group of people who were ethnically Jewish. Okay, this means they grew up hearing stories and singing songs about the promises of God. Where we grow up hearing singing songs about old MacDonald, they're hearing about the promises of God, the faithfulness of their God. They grew up hearing these things. They knew that there would be a day where the promised one would come to make all things new. They heard this from day one. They knew there would be a day where Jesus would come. He's the promised one to return to rule and reign over creation. A day where the book of Revelation says Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes. They had heard these promises. Faith, by definition, is looking forward to the ultimate fulfillment of the promises of God and living our lives in those realities now. In verse 2, he goes on to say that it was by this type of faith that the people of old received their commendation, okay? So that may not seem like much, but it would have been incredibly significant to a Hebrew audience. So, again, an audience who not only grew up hearing stories, singing songs about the promises of God, but they grew up hearing stories about these great men and women who had come before them, who accomplished all these incredible things for God. Men like Noah and Abraham and, and, and David, right? Women like Sarah, these folks grew up hearing these stories about all these things that have been accomplished for God, and this would have been so striking to them because the Bible just said that despite the fact that they have accomplished all these great things for God, the way they received their commendation from God wasn't by what they did for him, but rather by their faith in him. And that would have just blown their minds, right? Verse 2, for by it, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. This phrase, received their commendation, is actually one word in the original language. <clears throat> 
excuse me, uh, other translations of this would say this, for by faith, this is how the people of old pleased God. By faith, this is how the people who came before us, by faith, this is how they gained approval from God. So for a Hebrew audience, this would have raised more than a couple of eyebrows. Again, this would have been striking for them. The author knew this. So if you read chapter 11, what he's doing, he's just kind of proving to them, these people who you thought were great because of what they did, they're actually great because of their faith in Jesus. He starts verse 4, by faith, Abel offered a sacrifice to God that was more acceptable. So yes, he obeyed God, he offered a sacrifice, but what made it acceptable was because of his faith. Verse 5, Enoch, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. Again, not because of the way he lived, but because of his belief in who Jesus is, who God was. Verse 6, and he quits beating around the bush. He just goes out and says it. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Right? So here's his point. Not that it doesn't matter what we do, because it absolutely does. But the point is that he's making is the way for you to gain approval from God, the way for you and I to live a life that pleases God isn't by what you do for him, but rather it's by your faith in who he is and what he's done for you. And friends, this is the foundation of the Christian faith. This is what it means to be a Christ follower. It was, it's what the Apostle Paul means in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, when he says that you and I are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. This is the good news of the gospel, that we are loved and forgiven and saved by God, not because of who we are and not because of what we do, but solely because of who Christ is and what he has done for us. So do you hear the good news in that? Do you hear how freeing this is, right? Because if the gospel's true, and I believe that it is, you and I are free to quit pretending. That's what this means. We are free to be honest about our imperfections, honest about the ways that we don't measure up. That little nagging piece in me that says, I'm not a good enough husband. That nagging thing in you that says you're not a good enough father or you're not a good enough fill in the blank. The gospel sets us free because if our approval isn't based on what we do, but rather on what Christ has done, then we get to quit trying to desperately prove ourselves that we matter. Sets us free. It's an invitation to freedom because it's an invitation to take off the mask and quit pretending, to quit trying to hold the world up, spinning all these plates and allow God to do that. Quit trying to be sovereign when he's the one who's sovereign. Quit trying to be all-powerful when he's the one who's all-powerful. To quit living our lives in a constant state of fear of letting the people around us down. Because we feel like we have this God complex that we have to be that for them, paralyzed by what they think of us all the while. It's an invitation not to prove ourselves by what we do. Instead, we get to just be. And man, this is the gospel, and there's power in this truth to transform you, to set you free, like we saw in Hebrews chapter 10, from finding your worth and your identity in things or people. This is so silly. So many of us measure our worth, and maybe even worse, we measure the worth of the people around us based on what kind of stuff they have, based on what kind of clothes they wear, based on what kind of house they live in, based on what our title is at work, or how well our children obey. We are slaves to our doing. Slaves are proving ourselves externally and proving to the world that we matter. And the Bible says the gospel has the power to set you free from that. And the way that that happens is through faith. Hebrews 10 says, through faith we understand that we have a better possession and an abiding one. So among other things, this word abiding, it means that it's alive. Right? It means that this is, it's alive. It's a worth that doesn't fade over time, but rather it continues to get better and better and better. And let's just be honest this morning. Don't things have the power to make us feel good about ourselves? Like put on a new pair of shoes. 
Am I alone in that? You put on a new pair of sneaks, you just start, you walk a little taller, you feel a little better, you put on some new clothes, or you have, get a new car, or a new phone, or a new home, or whatever. Things have the power to make us feel good about ourselves. The difference is they aren't alive. They don't abide, right? The joy that they will bring to us, it is joy, but it will fade over time. And most of those things end up in garage sales or in the garbage, and then we have to find new things to make us feel good about ourselves. And the gospel has the power to set us free from things things that will never satisfy us the way they promise that they will. The gospel sets us free from that. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. The banner over the life of the Christian is not, I must obey, but rather I will trust my life fully in the obedience of Christ. So this is the argument the author of Hebrews is making. Again, a group of people who heard that good news, a group of people who responded in faith, to that good news, but again, life had grown so difficult for them, so challenging for them, they were being tempted to walk away from Jesus or to try to add to him. Right? They were manipulating the teaching of Jesus to make their lives more comfortable, thinking, yes, I must put my faith in Jesus, but I also need to make sure that I do my part if I want to actually be satisfied in life. So what's going on here in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 11 specifically, is they can't get it right what the relationship is between faith and obedience. And what I want you to see this morning, you and I to see this morning in the Word of God, is that despite the fact that there's almost 2,000 years between when this was written and where we are this morning, we do the exact same thing. That we can't get it right, our relationship between faith and obedience. How do those things work together? And so, like the Hebrews, we make one of two mistakes. We do this. We either swing the pendulum one way, and we think that if God is going to love us, then yes, I need to have faith in Jesus, but I also need to make sure that I'm in church on Sunday. I'm not saying church attendance isn't important. I'm just saying we think that if God's going to love me, then I need to do my part to follow the rules. I need to read my Bible. I need to be nice to my neighbor. I need to give. Whatever it is, we try to add to our faith with our obedience. Or we swing it the other way, right? We take it in the complete opposite direction, and we think that if God loves me, his love for me isn't based on what I do, but it's fully based on what Christ has done, then I'm going to do whatever I want. He's going to forgive me anyways, right? We swing it the other way. We see this as a license, an invitation to reckless living. And both of these things are equally dangerous, and they prove that we don't understand the gospel. We don't truly have an understanding of what it means to genuinely walk by faith. So I want you to see where Hebrews takes this. Look at verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household, and by this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Skip down verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city that has its foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, verse 11, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who promised. So this is what I meant earlier when I said that the book of Hebrews is not one of those books that you can just crack open with a cup of coffee and know what's going on. Right? You have to know who Noah is. You have to know who Abraham and Sarah is. And you have to know the story, kind of what's going on. And so we could spend a ton of time digging into their individual stories, seeing, tracing the hand of God, the faithfulness of God in their life, through their faith, through their obedience. But 
But for the sake of time, here's what I want you to see this morning. When it comes to following Jesus, when it comes to walking by faith or living the life that pleases God, there is an inseparable link between faith and obedience. When it comes to following Jesus, you cannot separate faith and obedience. Look again at verse 7. I want you to see this. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, he constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Okay? Translation. Noah obeyed God. Okay? But what fueled his obedience was his faith. So think about this. God comes to you and he says, hey, I'm going to flood the entire earth. Because of the wickedness, because of the corruption that exists, I'm going to flood everything. I'm going to destroy the earth, but I want you to be saved, and so I need you to build a boat. So God said, this actually happened, and then Noah does. Like, how crazy is that? We think about that. What happens is, we read the Bible as if these folks are some kind of superheroes. Like, they never got headaches. They never struggled the way we do. They never had anxiety. They never got tired, but that just isn't the case, Okay. Like, imagine how hard of a sell that would be to your family. So, I'm, this is conjecture, okay? I don't know what Noah's dinner table looked like, but say they're sitting around the dinner table, and you go, all right, tell me about your day. What's the highs and lows? Anybody do that, highs and lows or whatever? And they go around, and obviously Noah goes last because he's a patriarch, you know? And he gets there, and he's like, well, God told me that I need to build a boat. And then I guarantee you, he has kids. Every single one of his kids was like, Dad, I think you need a nap, okay? We live in the desert. We have no need for a boat, but he does, right? I can't, I can't think of a scenario where that went down where people didn't think Noah lost his mind. I just can't. So as I was studying for this sermon, Genesis 7 is kind of where it lines it out, and God gives incredible detail of how Noah should build the boat, okay? Like the length, the width, who should put on it, all these things that should be happening, incredible detail. And one of the most stunning verses in all the scripture, I'm convinced, is Genesis 7, verse 5. It won't be on the screen, but it says this, and Noah did all that the Lord commanded. So simple, yet so profound, that Noah obeyed God at his word even when it made him look foolish in front of his family. Like, think about all the stories people would tell. Even then, Noah obeyed. Again, we try to make these folks superheroes as if Noah never doubted. And, and, and here's the thing. I bet he did have moments and days in his life where he woke up and he was convinced God told me to build the ark, and he was eager and he was excited and he worked hard all day. He did have those days. But conservative estimates say that it took Noah 30 years to build a boat, 30 years of manual labor. You cannot tell me that in those 30 years, he didn't have at least 100 days where he thought to himself, what am I doing? After he hit his thumb, or after his back was hurting, or whatever, he thought to himself, what am I doing? I'm a laughing stock. People think I'm crazy. My family think I'm crazy. Half the time, I think I'm crazy. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that Noah didn't have doubts. The difference is he did not let his doubts dictate his decision to be faithful to the Word of God. That's the difference. His faith motivated and fueled his obedience because he believed, ultimately, that God could be trusted at his word. This is what I meant earlier when I said that faith and obedience is inseparably linked. Again, this does not mean that it is our obedience that earns for us the love of God. It doesn't. Verse 7 says this, By this obedience, Noah became an heir of the righteousness that come by faith. So yes, Noah obeyed, but what fueled his obedience was his faith. If that's confusing for you, maybe this will help. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is talking to a group of Pharisees, and he says something. He says, you'll know a tree by its fruit. 
And his point is really simple. He's saying that if a tree has good fruit on it, it's a good tree. If a tree has bad fruit on it, it's a bad tree. And so the point here, if we bring that into this space, is the life that is planted into the soil of faith will have on its branches the fruit of obedience. It's simple. If we have genuine faith, if we build our lives on genuine faith in Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us, then there will be on our branches, in our life, evidence of the fruit of obedience. And I know I keep repeating myself here, but I have to make sure that you don't walk out of here thinking that in order for you, in order for you to earn the love of God, you have to obey. I can't have you thinking that you walk out of here believing in your mind that I need to obey in order for God to love me. That is not the case. That is not what Hebrews 11 teaches. But I also cannot have you thinking that you have genuine faith if there is no objective evidence of obedience in your life at all. Because that is not what the Bible teaches either. Right? If all that makes you a Christian in your mind, all that sets you apart from the world around you is you show up here every Sunday or every couple of Sundays and you give your money every, every now and again, I am not saying that you're not a Christian. I'm not. But what I am saying is that you need to at least be asking yourself the question because Jesus says you will know a tree by its fruit. That's how you'll know. Meaning there is this inseparable link between genuine faith in God and obedience to him. And I think what some of us need to hear this morning is not, or if there is no fruit of obedience in my life, then maybe, maybe I'm not planted in the soil of genuine faith like I thought I was. Maybe I haven't built my life on these truths the way that I thought it was. I need to do some introspection. I need to do some soul searching. Again, we are not loved by God by what we do for him. We're not. But if we genuinely have faith and love in our heart for him, then we should at the very least have a desire to be obedient to him. At the very least. John Piper says it this way. Faith alone justifies. But the faith that justifies is never alone. So this word justifies, it's just another way of saying commended by God, gaining approval from God, living the life that pleases God. So he's saying faith alone pleases God, but the faith that pleases God is never alone. Right? The point is, if we truly believe who he is, and Jesus did for us what the Bible said he did, if we truly believe that, then we will want to be obedient to him. This is the link between faith and obedience, that obedience is the fruit of genuine faith that we are loved by God. It is not the means of obtaining God's love. And I know some of you right now are thinking, well, I I don't obey perfectly, I don't have all these things. I am not talking about perfect obedience or perfect faith here. Hebrews 11 is not saying that you should never have doubts or you're not saying that you should never have uh, seasons where obedience to God will feel impossible. That is not what I'm saying. Please don't hear that. That's not what the Bible teaches. That Maybe this is a a simple way to understand it. The opposite of faith is not doubt. Right? The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is disobedience. It is allowing our doubts to dictate our decision to continue following Jesus. So the Bible doesn't teach us that you you shouldn't have doubt. It's that we should push against uh, disobedience because we believe, like Noah, that above all else, God can be trusted at his word that he has what's best for us in mind, that he actually loves us the way the Bible says he loves us, enough to send Jesus that we might belong to him again. God is trustworthy. Look at verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. So I love that the author of Hebrews 
mentions Sarah in a chapter on what it means to walk by faith. Because if you know your Bible or you know anything about Sarah, you know that her faith was far from perfect. So I'll color it in for you a little bit. More than anything in the world, Abraham and Sarah, they wanted a child. They wanted a baby. Like they longed for it. She prayed for it. Year after year, she hoped and she prayed and still nothing. And then one night, God shows up to Abraham and he promises to make Abraham the father of a great nation, okay? And he brings him out of the tent and he says, look up at the stars, I'm going to make you that many offspring. That's how, you're going to be the father of a great nation. So Abraham's excited, right? The, the, God's fulfilling his promise. He runs back to Sarah. He tells her, hey, this is what happened. She's filled with joy. She's bursting, right? It doesn't happen right away. After a few years, it goes by, whatever. So, so Sarah tries to figure out, you know what? God must need my help. I'm going to go around God. I'm going to try to help him a little bit. I'm going to add my, my obedience to my faith. I'm going to try to help God out here. Hey, tell you what, I'm going to give, uh, I'm going to come give you a way to make a baby. So I'm going to give you my servant Hagar. He gives uh, Hagar to Abraham. Again, just a side note, these are real people. So imagine, just imagine the desperation she must feel to think that her best option would be to give another woman to her man. Like these are real people. Like that's not a good place if you're going to be there. Cultural differences aside, none of us want to do that. But that's what she felt like was her best plan. Then that plan backfires. Instead of being filled with joy like she thought she would be, she's overrun with jealousy. And that story goes real bad. And then her husband, Abraham, when he's 100 and when she's 90, God shows up again. And he says, you know what? I'm going to give you and your wife, Sarah, a son. Promises again. And the Bible says that Abraham laughs at God. The Bible says that when he goes and tells Sarah about it that she laughs at God it, it goes on to say that the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah and I'm not going to give you a biology lesson but what that means is that biologically the, the the cycle necessary for her to conceive a child quit so it wasn't working anymore so the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah Abraham goes and tells Sarah hey God came back again he said we are going to have a son you and me and the Bible says Abraham or Sarah laughed at God like she laughs she chuckles at him not like ha 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 funny joke but like a mocking laugh Genesis 18, verse 12 says this. This is Sarah's response to God. After I'm old and worn out, shall I now have pleasure? Basically, now you're going to answer my prayers? Thanks, but no thanks is pretty much what she's saying. Forget it. I'm 90 years old. I'm too old to, to chase around a kid. I'm too old to have a son now. Now you're going to give me pleasure, basically what she says. And still, the author of Hebrews in verse 11 says, by faith, Sarah received the power to conceive. Friends, the expectation, the requirement here for our faith is not perfection. It's not. Matthew 17, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says this, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can tell a mountain to move, to throw itself in the sea, and it'll listen. Translation, small faith, not perfection. Mark 9 tells the story of a man who had a son who was, had a disease from birth, and he brings his son to Jesus, and he says this, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus heals him. The requirement here is not perfection. The expectation is that not that we would never doubt God. It's just that we wouldn't allow our doubts to dictate our decision to continue following Jesus. To keep fighting to line our lives up with what he says is best. Not to earn his love and affection, but because we know we already have it. We obey because God, the God of the universe loves us. The creator God of the universe who created everything we can touch, taste, see, or feel, that God loves us. Why would we not want to obey? If we don't have to go around God to find joy and satisfaction in life. We can go to him. We can trust him at his word and live our lives the way 
he says we should. And if I'm honest, I man, this, this is a hard sermon to preach. It's not hard to preach faith. It's not hard to preach we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone. It's hard when we want to say the Bible teaches that where genuine faith is, there will also be obedience. As imperfect as it may be, but obedience nonetheless, it's hard because we don't like that. We don't like this idea of obedience and submission to authority. We want to do what we want to do. But what happens in the church is we get really good at playing the game. We get really good at pretending like this isn't what's going on in our hearts. And so we figure out how to make it look like we're being obedient on the outside when in reality we lack the genuine faith that should be motivating that obedience. We just pretend. So I'm talking about earlier, we just kind of project that we're all together. We project that we, got, we have no faults, we have no lack, we have no doubts. And man, I've known this to be true in principle, but I've had a front row seat to this bent in the human heart in the life of my two and a half year old. I'll tell you a story real quick, then we'll wrap up. So my oldest son, his name's Zeke, he's just like his mama. She, he, she is his number one by far, right? His favorite person in the world. It's like I'm not even in the room when she's there. So, but anyways, he, he's so much like her. He's sensitive and emotional, and I mean that in the best possible way, that he loves and he feels deeply, but he's two and a half. He hasn't learned how to play the game yet. He hasn't learned how to filter his feelings and emotions to try to project this false persona. And so he wears his heart on his sleeve. He wants what he wants. Translation, his, his new favorite word or his favorite word is mine. He's like the seagulls on Finding Nemo. Just mine, 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 right? Um, the other day, he and I went to Chick-fil-A because that's like the only food group he eats. Um, on Sundays, he just fasts because he doesn't eat anything. <laughs> And so it's just him and I, and when we finished, I took the toy from his kid's meal, and I went and traded it in for an ice cream. Not for him, for me, because I need an ice cream. Don't judge me. Parenting's tough. Like, I needed that. <laughs> just kidding. In truth, I was going to share it with him. I didn't want him to hold it because that's going to go bad. That's, that ice cream's going down. But he, I gave, he, he said this. He goes, Daddy, or he was like, bite Daddy's ice cream cone. And I was like, well, first of all, son, you don't bite ice cream because you can't trust a man that bites an ice cream cone. You can have a lick, okay? So I wanted to give him a lick of the ice cream cone, but that was like, we'll, we'll handle that discipleship when we get down the road. But you can't have a bite, you can have a lick. And so, but he didn't want me to hold it. He wanted to hold it. So he starts freaking out. And he's like, mine! You know, he's freaking out. And I'm just to avoid a meltdown in the restaurant, I gave in, okay? Again, don't judge me. Parenting's tough. Like, you have to... <laughs> You have to make concessions in those moments. Everyone's looking, and I'm like, he wants the ice cream. What do I do? You know, so I just gave it to him. <laughs> so we're good. He's got the ice cream cone, and then it's time to leave. And I'm like, I need to hold the ice cream cone because I need to put you in your car seat. I need to carry you. I've got to figure out how to navigate my way to the uh, – uh, I'm a dad, right? I don't have it figured out like a mom. So we're getting out to the parking lot. So he's holding it, and I'm like, buddy, I've got to take it back. And he just starts screaming, mine ice cream cone, mine ice cream cone. And I'm like, I tried to reason with him because that's what you do. In those situations with toddlers, it's real helpful. I'm like, I'm like, buddy, it doesn't make any sense what you're saying because you just said it was daddy's ice cream cone and now you're saying it's yours, okay? So that doesn't make any sense. And the whole time he's just like, my ice cream cone, my ice cream, just freaking out in the parking lot. And it's like right there where the, uh, the drive-thru's coming through. We're holding up the drive-thru. He's freaking out. The ice cream cone fell on the ground, just so you know. It didn't get finished eating. But anyways, the point I want to make is I didn't teach him that. Like, I, I'm not father of the year, but I can honestly say I've never snatched an ice cream cone from my wife and yelled mine at her, okay? I didn't teach that to my son. She, she's done that to me before in pregnancy, but not in front of him, okay? So we didn't teach him that. It comes naturally in him. 
And, and the reality is this exists in you and I too. This bent in the heart that we want what we want when we want it, it exists in us. It's just we're better at playing the game. And if we're honest, we don't want to be obedient. What it comes down to is that we don't trust anyone else to be in control of our lives, even God. We don't. If we want to be honest about it, we don't even trust him. And, and we think we know what's going to bring us the most amount of joy in life. And our unwillingness to be obedient to God, it proves that we lack the faith that he actually loves us the way the Bible says he does. And the answer here isn't to run out and to white-knuckle our way into obedience because that would be us trying to take the fruit of obedience and stick it to the tree. That's not how it works. What we need is faith to plant our lives in the faith that Jesus is who he says he is, and he has done for us what the Bible says he has done, and to build our lives now on the fulfillment, ultimately, of the promises of God, and then our li line our lives up, and the fruit of obedience will come naturally. Not a begrudging submission to God's plan, but willful, going, yes, God, I will obey you. I will do my best, not perfectly, but I'll do my best because I know you love me and because I know you're trustworthy. Friends, God isn't trying to rob you of anything. In fact, it's the opposite. Every command of God in the scriptures is meant to lead you out of a life of, of, of disappointment and into a life of joy. So as we close, I just want you to consider a couple questions together. What are the areas of your life where you are un unwilling to be obedient to God? As you think about it in your mind right now, I'm praying the Holy Spirit would illuminate to you in this moment the spaces of your life where you're going, my, he can't have that. I'll show up on Sundays, I'll go to a community group, whatever it is. What are the things in your life where you're like, that's mine? And what's underneath that? Is it not ultimately that you don't believe that God has your best in mind? That he can lead you into a life of joy? I just want you to know, God is trustworthy. You can trust him at his word. And so, another one, when you think about the areas of your life where there is obedience, or where there is a desire to be obedient, what is motivating your obedience? Is it fear? Is it a fear of what people will think about you? Is it a fear of proving yourself to the world around you, trying to prove even to God that you matter? Or is it love? Are you living in light of the fact that God says you already do matter? Is this what's motivating your obedience? Is your obedience a fruit of faith? Because the Bible says that faith and obedience are inseparably linked. Not the way we earn God's love by obedience, we earn it by faith, or we get it by faith, by believing in who Jesus is and what he's done for us. But it is the fruit of genuine faith, is obedience. Let me pray for us, and we'll get out of here. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy in our lives. Thank you for the reality that you love us enough to be honest with us this morning. My prayer, my hope, is that you would help us, by the power of the Holy Spirit, see the places in our lives where we are unwilling to be obedient to you, unwilling to fall underneath your love and care for us. Will you help us, Father? We need your help. Can we just be honest this morning and say we don't have it together when life is good and even when it makes us look foolish, God, will you help us to obey, help us to trust you at your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.